Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at at RMIT University in Melbourne. And I'm here with an architect called uh, Theo Kolidis. He's director of K20 Architecture. And his partner is Anthony Yu, or... Um, Anthony Uwadanasako. Thank you for that, Theo. Welcome to the program. Theo, architecture is an interesting area. Why did you decide to become an architect? Was there anything in your family background that led to architecture? Was it? Yeah, I, th- I think as as a family, the it's a family of makers. I think uh, is probably the common thread. Different makers. So my uncle was a tailor, for example. Dad was a um, a pastry chef. Uh, but certainly in the culture, and my other uncle was a shoemaker. Um, and uh, there was an element of the craft in the family and I think uh, the culture of work um, and, and I believe with architecture and and you know why moving into architecture for me it was really about thinking about how to be part of something more than just the immediate so it was, it was thinking about where I can spend my energy my direction my my energy and I remember watching this, remember in year 12, going back, this going back a few years now, Steve, um, watching this show on modernist architects, um, you know, Le Corbusier, Mace, was that sort of period of architecture modernism coming through. And and it really appealed to me, the, the notion of being involved, architects, people, individuals, being involved in creating this, at that stage, this amorphic idea about the greater good, a fairness, mm. And, and modernism was about the search of fairness and equality. And I don't know, it really resonated with me. And, you know, in year 12, when you're sort of doing a list of... What you want to do. What you're going to do. And, you know, I was, I had, I, mine was a really appalling short list, you know. What were the other things on the list? Oh, I was, yeah. was pretty uneventful, Stephen. Yeah. It, um, it was just medicine and law, and I figured I didn't want to do either of those. And um, I was fortunate enough to get the right scores and... Um, and it was free to choose, and um, and architecture was my commitment, and I never turned back. Had never any experience with it, never worked in it, but it was simply that that connection with the fairness of it and the equality of of creating um, architecture in the public domain that that I was really seeking out. What did the greats speak to you at the time? I mean, maybe like Le Corbusier and Mies. What what really resonated? Yeah. I, just even as you, yeah. yeah, it was just really about the quality of light. I was sort of vaguely, you know, thinking about the quality of light. It was that sort of a, the emotional experience of architecture and, and the form of architecture that was really resonant. That really resonated. You know, I vaguely can recall, um, you know, being inspired by you know the amount of light that was coming into spaces, the connectivity with landscape and open space, the the urban uh, design around the buildings, the connection back to city. And I guess this overall notion of civilization. There was there a building in particular that either in Melbourne or on your overseas travels with family yeah. that you you walked into and you said, "Well, I've made the right choice." Was there, or oh. it doesn't it, is that a bit too difficult to answer? Yeah, I think it is for me. Yeah. I think it is, but I, I think I'd, it's just you know I think there's beauty in all architecture. I think you know, and sometimes you have to search a little bit harder to see it, and sometimes it's just clearly evident. And and when it's clearly evident is when all the moving parts are really working together really well as as a complete piece of experience. And sometimes you can't even put your finger on it. There's just that... It's just the intangible. And it's lovely when that happens. And it's lovely when you've actually got that 
the journey and the architect's hand is just walking you through the building. You're able to experience it. And, and it's wonderful. And, you know, I remember traveling through Venice and, you know, that's got a real urban feel to it and that real tactility about it. And there's a real tech, you can sort of rush through and, and, you know, brush your hand through the city and feel the architecture. And there's that closeness of architecture. Because the lanes are so tight. The lanes are so tight and the buildings are right there. And, you know, the boundary between private and public is, is almost, you know, zero, you know, zero thick, you know, it's very thin. So you worked, after graduating, um, you worked for a number of firms, yep. including Peck von Hartel and various firms. Yep. To start your own practice requires a little bit of a leap of faith, a bit of a challenge. Yeah. It's not something yeah. you do lightly. It wasn't, wasn't easy at all. No, it definitely wasn't. What was, the, what was the challenge in the early days? It was 2000 that you studied, reckon, that you established K20. Honestly, just believing that we could do it. I think I was think, there something in the in the pipeline that was coming through? Not that? at all. We both Tony and myself when we first started the business, we did it really honestly. I think we didn't have any um, family contacts. You know, we weren't networked that way. Um, we didn't take any clients from our previous employers. Um, we just simply decided to start on the journey working specifically in the public domain, both mm-hmm. Tony and myself. And that was something that we were, we were talking about quite closely, you know, for at least 10 years. And I knew Tony back in university days as well. Melbourne University, yeah. Yeah, back then. And um, so there was a common thread and there was this sort of, you know, almost like a brother-like quality between us. You know? So when a practice actually opens, the shingle goes out, Yeah, there's nothing really on the table. No. Don't you panic? No, not at all. So how, how do you kind of get your first job? Yeah. I mean, what was the first you, job? You're kind of scaring me now, Stephen. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Theo, what was the first job? The first job was a childcare centre um, for City Port Phillip. Um, it was a small project. It was about 300000 and um, And that was probably going back, yeah, at least 13, 14 so years So that was ago. by tender? Everything's by tender, unfortunately, or fortunately. Um, yes, I was by tender, and, and we were lucky enough to to be awarded that opportunity of designing a childcare centre. And um, and we'd completed that project, and then things, you know, we stayed true to it. There was, we didn't deviate from our mission. Um, what did you set out as your mission? If to you... yeah, look, I think like over the time, over the last fifteen years, we've really. You know, there's, there's a thing in, in life, isn't there, where you, you know, meant to know yourself. And and I, and I think to some degree there's an element where, you know, you know yourself. But the challenge is when you are, are opening the door and putting the shingle up, as you say, for the business, I think there's an element where the business needs to learn about what it is about. Mm. Um, and it took us, it's taken us about 10 years to really understand deeply what the practice is about, what we're there about. We were simply guided by the single mandate of public projects, so very exclusive around just working specifically in the public sector. So local Public state, housing. Public housing, uh, medical, education, sporting, community centres, town halls, libraries. So working in that public domain, in that really strict public domain uh, and, framework. And what was the reason behind it? Just because it's something that people can visit, enjoy? Yeah. So if I think about you know the motivation of doing architecture it's that it's that connection of place and people and spirit and the 
the impact of doing an individual home has a limited impact. It, it really family, friends, it's family, friends, ego. Mm. Um, it, it serves a different master. It serves a different purpose when you're doing an individual home. They're, you know, they're, they're rewarding projects to do. There's no doubt about that. But if I think about, you know, our reason for for being an arch- being, you know, an architect and, and committing our energy, our passion, our life to this. Um, you know, we wanted something more in the public domain, albeit it's a very difficult and challenging space to be in. Um, you know, really keeps us going. So, it's interesting yeah. though. You've you've done a number of significant projects in housing yeah. uh, for public. Uh, one of them was um, the first one was in West Footscray called. Oh, that's right. Uh, uh, Trinity Apartments. Trinity Apartments. Yeah, affordable housing. Affordable yes. housing, and then you went on to. Uh, design eternity correct yep that's an interesting story and i think it's something that shows you uh, it's not just about making a, a quick buck and getting out mm. for people who don't know about it it's yeah. westwood's gray you did um trinity which was affordable housing and yep. there was a site directly opposite you and you thought yep. This could either go two ways. It was bought by a developer who was basically interested in just maximising the yield. Correct, yep. And you thought, no, I'll buy the land and do something that forms a community. Now, that's quite a brave move. Mm. And tell me about that, because I think it's interesting. Yeah, so uh, eternity. So the, oh, man, it's sort of one of those things which, you know, we don't Mm. do a lot of housing work. So when I first started Trinity... The, the background to that was being involved in the affordable housing space. And I remember when Kevin Rudd first launched that program, you know, it didn't really make a lot of sense to me and it was really tough to engage, but it took me about two years to really find how the program was working and allow that program to survive through Trinity Apartments. And today we've got um, you know quite a, quite a unique building of affordable housing and, and the experience of individuals there you know we've gone back and had a chat to the to the individuals is a really positive one that's actually really um it means a lot you know it was opened by the mayor and and the local me- local member master thompson as well and it was really positive but you know it was shortlisted for an award again really good things but the the reach of the site wasn't there for me it felt like i didn't a little bit of an island yeah and i wanted to really i felt that i needed to extend extend the reach and the influence of the sense of building a community because it's quite a uh, picturesque environment. It's on the banks of Stony Creek. Yeah, it's yeah. near Stony Creek. It's right on Stony Creek. Well, actually. the new yeah. development, Eternity. Yeah. So this developer was going to plan something quite yeah, dense. Yeah, it, it was quite a it was quite a monolithic building. It was uh, it was quite a bland looking building. It had very little relationship to the land. Um, it was removing all native species. It was just another apartment block. I I felt that it was the wrong thing to do I guess from my own aspect I, I, the, the compelling thing for me was wanting to deliver something beyond the site having the reach beyond the site and Trinity hadn't completed the development of a community for me so del- delivering housing and apartments and people and community and I felt that I could do that if I was to uh, secure by you know 110 Robert Street Eternity and the, the thing I particularly loved about the site was the trees on the site uh, which were all being removed, so they're, they're just being clear. They're all going to go, and just this sort of this apartment block. And um, so, yeah, I, I bought it. Um, I and in a sense, you 
built more apartments on that site than previously yeah, planned. Yeah, so, so what we've done is we're only using about 50% of the land mass. So we're using um, just under half of the land area. And the original planning permit had a, a three-level building, but we're able to allow council to get on board with the vision of retaining the landscape and, and developing the ecology and promoting natural bird life and restoring the waterway with the work that we're doing because we had an ecologist as part of our team doing all the landscaping um, planting schemes. And council, as part of all that, allowed us to go one extra level on top. So so you can actually have your cake and eat it too kind of thing where if you're able to get the right engagement with council, they're not the enemy. They actually bring a lot of value to the process as long as we're there to try and deliver the right outcomes as well. And, and we're very lucky in this instance to have... Um, you know, some very good leadership from within council to allow this project to... It is, uh, Theo, yeah. on the backflip side, it is interesting that something that wasn't particularly appropriate mm. got the nod and could have really changed that whole environment. Yeah. <coughs> I, think it's, look, I think it's one of the challenges in, in our public space, in our, in our, in our domain, where, um, you know, there is a right to develop, there is a right to build, there is a right to house. And the question that I have when we approach this is, you know, how are we going to do that? You know, how are we going to allow the environment to shape our building and the building shape ourselves? And what is our relationship with our landscape? Um, are we leaving the place better than we're finding it? Mm. Are we allowing the community to develop and make homes here? Mm. Um, do you ever ask yourself mm. the question, would I live here? Always, yeah. I always, always like retaining it. I always think about the kids. Um, I always think that anything that I do... Can a family live here? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I approach it, I guess there's an, always an element of, you know, there's, a, there's always a selfish element behind design, and that's, you know, the hand of the architect. And I think to some degree that selfishness, that, 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 um, uh, that, that thought, that innovation, there is some, something self-serving about that. I think it's quite a selfish thing as an architect to, to create and innovate. And um, you're either aware of it or not. I think the reality of it is is that that we are selfish as designers and I think it's a beautiful thing yeah. to think about yourself and to think about what I live in this place and how could I and I think it's about the motivation that that drives that selfishness is it there to make profit is it there to you know what's behind it is it there to create something that is long lasting is it there to create a community what are the drivers what's the what's the um, motivation there's another interesting project that you're working on. I don't know if I can talk about it, but yeah, yeah. Uh, Bowbird? Bowbird, Can yeah. I talk about that or rather not? Bit early. Bit early. Uh, well, let's leave early. that. But yeah. there's another project I thought was interesting, which was the uh, Ballarat um, oh, the soccer, soccer State facility. facility. Yeah. And it's an interesting one. And I think a lot of architects would be in the may have come across the same dilemma mm. when you, you – get this wonderful budget or a reasonable budget to start with and you think oh look I can produce anything the client wishes and mm. then you realize the budget's been cut by like 80 percent yeah, it was horrible and how do you yeah. I mean what's your reaction when you outrage <laughs> <laughs> I mean because many many architects would just say look I'm I'm actually walking away from yeah this. you just you, you, um, you throw the pens down slam the door and out you go no no none of that I think um, you know when clients come to us um, you know, I, I, you know, in that particular moment, uh, there's a real vulnerability. I mean, like, no one really likes to be put in that position. You know, no one likes to... Because you feel unprepared. Well, even from their point of view as well, yeah. Stephen, like, it's... Surely they wouldn't have wanted 
to be in that position as well. You know, they let the tender out. It was there and somehow it wasn't there. Um, so you prepared this scheme, scheme present on, it, yeah. and then they've told, look, 80% of it has go. to go. Yeah. So your reaction is not to spit the dummy. You decided to stay. It's kind it. of fun to do that, though, Stephen. I kind of miss out on those opportunities. <laughs> I reckon. I so you, you stage it. So that's that's quite. Tell me about that, Theo. Yeah, I think. Um, look, it was a, it was a really it was a you know the journey of arch- delivering architecture and um, public architecture is one of those things where the people that we're immediately working with aren't the end user. Um, the people that we're often working with are simply paying the bills, you know, to be quite crude about that. But there is still a culture within our organisations, the public public client groups, where there is a sense of social fairness, there is a sense of delivering something where the community is going to embrace it. And that was certainly true of Ballarat Council. There was certainly true that they wanted to hope that something's great, something beautiful, something basic, I guess, even at the core of it, you know, could be still produced with the budget they they were Well, they wanted to attract the Asia Cup. Yeah, they did. Asian Cup. Yeah, they didn't think they could do it initially with the budget. And they did that in 2014. Yeah, they got it over line. Yeah, it was kind of cool. They they sort of, they they allowed us to take them on a journey of, of, you know, staging the project. And one of the the catalysts for them to believe that they could do this was simply, um, you know, a, a piece of, taking a piece of, translating a piece of cultural identity within Ballarat, you know, the stockade, the Eureka stockade, and allowing the 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 visualisation of how the, a stockade wall is constructed and how it could actually enclose, you know, a, the field. And for, for the client to visualise that you could actually build the stockade in segments, in parts, and you could add to it horizontally or vertically. Um, and the interesting thing with the use of stockade is, you know, there's there's, it's really part of quite a, you know, fractured history of Ballarat. You know, it's gold's been ripped out of the earth. Miners are fighting colonial forces. It's a very violent time, and and it's a very charged word in my view. You know, the stockade and the Eureka stockade. It's very emotive, and and I think what was really relevant about, you know, allowing the visualization of the stockade to allow the client to see how it could actually progressively construct this to allow them to get behind the idea of having a curved building which is in effect just you know a very simple part of what may one day eventuate their their thinking of it was that you know we could just build something square you know Mm. and we were convincing them to build something with a round back that would then emerge into a stadium longer term and the the stockade in this instance Unlike what was what it was doing previously, which was defending things being taken away, the stockade was actually being used in this instance to defend something that could be put back in, mm. and that's what we'd hope would be remembered with the use of stockade for Morshead Park, and it allowed the client to envisage that it could create something greater than what it could actually realistically afford. It allowed the the ability of creating something that is culturally relevant, albeit that maybe. The you know the individuals externally may not necessarily know, you know how the stockade and it could be staged and it could be staged and it could allow the client to progressively plug into the project. Initially, they never wanted us to develop a master plan for the entire site, but after we'd actually started and after the vision of the project to 
which allowed it to become part of the Asian Cup, and it was a really massive coup for Ballarat and A-League games being played there and all the feedback that they're getting. I just hope that they will complete it and I will. You know, hopefully they can just continually expand on the idea of the stockade. Um, Theo, um, if, you were, if you're given the choice, I mean, which area of uh, public architecture probably excites you the most? I mean, what, what do you find is the most oh, rewarding? But what, what do you find? Is it ha- public housing? Is it sporting facilities? Is it institutional? I don't, I don't know. Like, I think it's... Just as you say that, I'm kind yeah. of thinking of edges. I'm, I'm thinking about the edge of public and private is what I'm thinking of. Uh, I, I, I don't approach, um, you know, a sporting project differently from a... Um, housing from a housing project there is always a public domain there's always a permeability there is always a level of connectivity that it's occurring the programs are vastly different so the the program the life cycle the usability all that's vastly different projects but the approach to the to the to the urban placement of the buildings is always the same for me so i just love to be able to keep on doing the same and more of it, basically, is what I what I love to be able to do and be in a position of doing. I mean, the public housing you've done, for example, yeah. very high standard. Yeah. Do you get tired of people saying, "God, it's better than my house," and that um, you know why why people um, getting access to these amazing apartments and they are beautiful. Yeah. Um, because you know there is that sense of envy. And, yeah. You know when people see you know housing now is quite a different. It's quite approach to what it was in the 60s with the high different, rise and they are very attractive they're salubrious they're kind of there's not much difference between public and private when it's mm. done really well yeah and is there a bit of a backlash with people you know saying well you know why is it better than ours you know the interesting and thing, why shouldn't it be why shouldn't it be the interesting <laughs> thing with trinity apartments one of the one of the biggest hurdles we that i had to overcome was the belief of the the um there's this sort of selection committee within mm. state government or federal government that appoints and allocates and works it all out. One of the challenges was that they felt that the project looked... It's going to sound bizarre, I actually mm. hate even referring it this way, but I really... It looks too good to be a social housing project. Mm. Um, and that was the biggest hurdle. That was the biggest hurdle, allowing, allowing the uh, decision-makers to believe that this could actually be... Um, a standard of design, a standard of design that 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 attempted to create homes for people and not be limited by um, an aesthetic appeal of of producing anything other than excellent or, or wonderful proportioned homes with connectivity and floor to ceiling, and it, it was kind of bizarre to think that you kind of got that feedback. But they got we got them over the line. We we explained mm-hmm. to them. The whole merits of the design and what it was all about. When you, Theo, when you're working in that, mm. with that brief, you kind of get told, well, they don't need outdoor bar- barbecues on their terraces. They don't need this. They don't need that. Yeah. And you have to kind of justify the things that you put in, or is there just this is the budget? If you make it work in a yeah. certain way, then it's really up to you how you deal with it. Yeah, I think I think there's I think there's always like if I think about one of our projects, for example. Uh, uh, the High Marsh Corporate Centre, for example, um, you know, there's there's one project where the client had an absolute fixed budget. There's one project where 
residential a, project? Or no, it's not. Office? This is a what would you call it? A corporate community facility. So it's the I guess um, Highmarsh Council Council HQ headquarters, and um, uh, they had no borrowings for it. They had no, unlike most other councils, most other government bodies, there's always some funding stream coming from somewhere. There's a bucket of money happening somewhere. These guys were self-funded, uh, which is very unique. And they so so consequently the the fixed budget and they wanted to create something which was um, quite pragmatic. I think it's quite in terms of where they first started off. And what was really interesting with that project is just you know taking the time to listen to the client group and uh, just allowing the conversation, the narrative of the project, and the narrative of what is it they were you know hoping to achieve. And there was this one moment I remember with Dean Miller, the CEO there, and. Um, you know, and again, there's this beautiful moments of vulnerability. So hopefully, mm. people don't get too upset with me speaking about these. But where Dean turned over, and there was a sort of master plan prepared by um, prepared previously by another architectural firm, and you know, Dean leant over and and again identified and goes, you know, where's my front door? Where's this sort of people talk about street presence? And and again, it's those it's that moment when the client is allowing us to build that trust and allowing us to um, connect with them. You know, by being you know in that moment. And it was really simple. I said, you know, it was all just about where the front door was. And he sort of turned to me and goes, where's the front door, mate? You know? Where was it? Where was it? And it was really hard to see. In, the, in all yeah. honesty, it was sort of one of those things that just didn't kind of work. Yeah. But then, you know, what came out of that was, well, why is that important to you, Dean? You know, why is that important? And, and there was this whole narrative that came out of that which spoke about, uh, well, our community work here. You know, people drive by. They... It's fathers, it's sons, it's mothers, it's daughters working in this place, and we want them to be able to see out and people as they drive by, everyone's in the car, be able to see it and say, oh, my son's there and my wife's there, I'll pop in and say hello. So all of a sudden, you know, what we had with that conversation was this moment of transparency in the building, connectivity beyond the site. What we also had was it wasn't really about the front door. It was all about permeability. So... Out of that one session, that was one session that really shaped the brief. So the client had this brief of, you know, yes, we need seats mm. here and uh, you want to do it in stages and budgets mm. and time and all that sort of stuff. But there was something bigger than that. Mm. And and it was about the, the narrative. It was about the the connectivity of the facility back to its people and its mm. people back with the facility. And the most important, did he get his front door? Oh, he got more than his front door. He got six doors, Stephen. There were doors everywhere. Um, look, Theo, yeah. it's been a pleasure having you on the program today. Um, it's interesting. I think you made the right call in becoming an architect. And um, pleasure having you on. It's been a pleasure, Stephen. You've been with um, listening to Theo, Theo Kolidis, uh, Director of K20 Architecture, and you've been listening to Stephen Crafty Talking Design. Thanks so much for listening.